Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I am Jim Grant, and with me today, as always, is the uh, the great Evan Lorenz, Deputy Editor of Grant's, and Eric Whitehead at the Controls. Well, this podcast is brought to you by our friends at Morty, that's uh, M-O-R-T-Y, the newest and smartest way to get a home mortgage, and it's brought to you by eFinancial Careers, which is the world's leading financial services career website. And joining us today is Andy McCulloch. Andy, welcome. I, Andy is, is the head of the real estate analytics team at Green Street. And he's been doing this, what, since I guess three years now, since 2014. Before that, Andy led coverage at Green Street of, of residential REITs and uh, covered apartments, what, student housing and manufactured housing and an alumnus of, I think, almost everything USC had to offer, maybe except for football or something. But he's a uh, USC alumnus. He's a, a CFA charter holder and also he's a counselor of real estate, which you'll tell us about in the fullness of time. But uh, Andy, welcome to our podcast is what we call it. Well, thanks, guys, for having me on. Uh, happy to be here. And I, I am a diehard Trojan. I did get a few degrees there. I did not play football, okay. unfortunately. Okay. Um, Andy, I, I, um, I want to begin by uh, asking you this. Uh, you know, uh, the present-day levitation and almost all things tradable has been called, uh, you know, the everything bubble. And uh, I wanted to ask you, what about real estate? Are valuations uh, extreme? Are they worrisome or are they not? It's a, it's a good question. So I think, you know, we get the question, where are we in the cycle? I think the two questions, really, where are we in the cycle with respect to asset values? And then where are we in the cycle with respect to operating fundamentals? I think, you know, the asset values are a capital markets phenomenon. So we are seeing record pricing, although I think maybe the froth has come out of the market a little bit. I think cap rates uh, have flattened out a little bit, even turned down in certain sectors. Uh, when it comes to operating fundamentals, so think about rent growth, things, things are still pretty healthy. We're, we're slowing. Things are slowing, but it's still positive. In, in almost all sectors with the exception of low-quality real estate. So I'd say the operating environment is generally healthy, but slowing. And just put that in context, I think rent growth is slowing to a level somewhere kind of around inflation. But it's still, when it comes to supply and demand, I think it's still relatively relatively healthy there. And when you think about just where cap rates are, they're low, but we're in a low return environment. And, you know, when we think about cap rates, we're really looking at long-term interest rates and, and they haven't really moved all that much. So, you know, I think this this idea that, hey, what, what's going to happen if the Fed starts raising rates? I think there's a lot of attention played to that in the media, but we like to, to point our clients back to, hey, don't look at the short end of the curve so much, look at the longer end of the curve. And if you think about, you know, this correlation between cap rates and interest rates, you know, if you look what the Fed has done over the last two years, I think they've moved rates up. 125 basis points, I think, since they started raising rates in late 15. Ten-year has barely moved. Right. Maybe it's up 10 basis points. And cap rates have barely I moved wanna, as well. Andy, I so. want to take. I want to uh, just uh, move back a little bit towards this slur. You said the word media. Now, I don't, Evan, do you, we're, we're kind of the media, right? Yeah. We, we yeah. print a, okay. every two okay. weeks. Okay, so I just want to clarify that one point. Hey, but Andy, with, re with respect to interest rates, um, Evan Lorenz has slipped a piece of paper under my nose, and it points out that the two-year Treasury yield now is above the S&P dividend yield for for the first time in a decade. Now, those, to be sure, are not long-term rates, uh, but you know, it's insofar as the yield curve is going to flatten, insofar as it's going to be more difficult for a bank to make money on tightening net interest margins, uh, is it going to be a little bit harder to secure debt financing for real estate? And will not, that not feed into valuations? 
I think if that happens, yes, any time that it's harder to secure financing or becomes more costly to secure financing for real estate, I, I think it absolutely would impact values. I think if you read the Green Street research, everything we publish, you know, we're always looking at unlevered returns. We think that's a better way to look at the world. But real estate is a levered asset. And we know that. So that the cost and availability of debt absolutely matter. It seems, though, in the world that, that we largely live in, in, in kind of high-quality, institutional-quality real estate, most of these companies, at least today, are having very little trouble securing debt. And that's both mortgage debt, that's unsecured bonds going and issuing unsecured bonds. The CMBS market is, is kind of a shadow of its former self, but that's generally healthy now, too, uh, for higher-quality assets. Now, if things start to tighten up, where does that usually happen? I think banks start de-risking and they're less willing to take risk, maybe at certain riskier property types or at higher leverage levels or maybe on development. And we know we have heard that construction financing is definitely harder to get than financing for stabilized assets. So when you start to see that tightening, I think probably lower quality assets, potentially secondary and tertiary market assets uh, get hurt. Andy, another sign of the cycle. We just saw one of the larger um, real estate acquisitions uh, get announced, uh, Unibail's acquisition of uh, Westfield at a sub 4% cap rate. What does this say about where we're in? By way of explanation, these, these these assets are shopping center assets. And as we know, shopping centers have actually gone out of business, all of them, because of uh, this man Bezos, this menace. Anyway, just, I want to interject that, Andy. But you might, you might be able to clarify some of the details I might have uh, overlooked. Yeah, so I think it's a it's a big acquisition. You know, by taking out Westfield, what the exact dollar amount, talk about the assets of the equity, we call it $15 billion acquisition. So uh, a big deal. As far as where the rates, the cap rates are, I think everybody, as we know, has, has their own definition of cap rates. The way we define it, uh, the deal is getting done at a mid 4% cap rate can, range. Can you define, so your, still can you define roughly your, your definition, your cap rate? Yeah, so we, we talk cap rates nominal. So this is, call it pro forma, next 12 months, uh, NOI before any type of CapEx reserve. So, you know, in this deal, if you look at tenant improvements and leasing commission, so kind of an after CapEx basis or an economic cap rate, cap rate as a lot of people call it, you probably are getting down into the threes, but our nominal cap rate is so, mid Andy, fours. And then, just to simplify, and then, it's, a, it's a low cap rate. And I think in your note in the, or the Green Street note, they said this deal is going to come up with like a 11 times net debt to EBITDA for leverage. So it's a very low cap rate with a very high amount of leverage. Yeah. So uh, as far as there is some levering up, which we don't like, you know, green shoes, we like, we like low leverage deals. There is an element of, of higher risk to the combined entity that, that could obviously impact our credit rating as well, which could impact their cost of debt, which makes the overall acquisition somewhat less attractive. But generally, I would say if you look at the, the cap rate where we are, you kind of got to split it out too, because there's U.S. assets and European assets, and it's probably a high 4% cap rate for the U.S. stuff, and then probably a high 3% cap rate for a lot of the London assets. And to your question, just does it anything about where we are in the cycle. And, and I'm not sure it necessarily does. And I say that because this deal might have been driven by something a little different. I think two, two big things. One, we know the retail landscape uh, is changing pretty dramatically. Yes, e-commerce is changing retail. And there's a lot of, I think, lower quality assets or certain type of, of retail assets that are directly in the crosshairs, and they're going to be hurt quite a bit. You're, you're seeing that definitely. But for high quality uh, retail assets, like the ones that are owned by Westfield and a lot of other high quality REITs, it feels unjustified what's been happening to the public share prices. And so I think this deal, maybe more than anything else, is probably driven by the frustration on the part of Westfield that they're trading uh, below NAV. And they've been trading below NAV for a long period of time. And why, why that matters is for a REIT that wants to grow accretively, um, they can't really grow if they're trading at a discount because it would be value destructive to go issue equity. So I think there's a frustration there that they have felt, and probably a lot of other mall REITs have felt as well, that their cost of equity was just too high and it really neutered their ability to grow 
grow. And then I'd say the other big thing about this deal in particular is, and I, and I don't know this uh, for a fact or anything, but the chairman is is almost 90 and his sons that are co-CEOs, uh, maybe they don't want to be uh, running the day-to-day business anymore in this kind of frustrating retail environment. So I, I think their cost of capital, which was injured, was a big factor and maybe some cultural uh, issues as well. And in your opinion, is the market was the market justified in valuing Westfield below net asset value given the perhaps uh, certainly familiar, maybe it's already discounted, but given the uh, the unfavorable look of the uh, brick and mortar retailing environment, might not the valuation of Westfield where it has been, might not that be logical and defensible? Yeah, it's a very good question. And, and I think generally the public market is pretty smart, right? So, you know, we we provide advice to our clients on both the public side and the private side, but even to our private clients, we say, hey, look at what the public market is, is telling you about the future direction of asset values, because it, it tends to be right more than it's wrong. In the case of mall asset values, we've reduced mall asset values 10 to 15% since the beginning of the year. So values have come down. The question is the public market, which I think is right in some, some degree when it comes to mall values, did it just overshoot? And our opinion was, yes, it overshoot shot, but for high quality assets. So mall reads it on high quality assets. We feel like the value, value overshot. And I think, so what does this deal tell us? And mall investors have been desperately looking for some type of pricing transparency because not a lot has happened. If you look at what this deal applies about kind of our current NAVs that we use today, it's pretty close to our current NAVs. Now, to my prior point, those NAVs have been coming down. As of where they sit today, this is an interesting and, pricing and if you point would, that if kind you of would, justifies Could you give us an today. example of, of a particular property of Westfields that, that is typical of your definition of high quality and what makes it so? Yeah, I think what we'd say when we say high quality, a lot of these what the REIT zone are kind of fortress type assets. So if you think about the mall universe, maybe there's 12 or 1300 malls, depending on how you define malls in the US, but to call it 12 or 1300 kind of large regional malls, you know, these kind of fortress assets are probably in the top 100 or 150. So, you know, we've said in our research that probably 300 or so the malls in the US are going to go away over the next 10 years and maybe several hundred more in the decades after that. So a dramatic, fairly dramatic right-sizing uh, of the mall industry in the U.S. But if you look at where most of the value is, so not malls by number, but malls, malls by value, they're really concentrated in this, call it top 100 or 150 assets, which can be largely owned by your Westfields and your Simons and your GGPs and your Taubmans, companies that own very high-quality assets but have really seen their share prices under dramatic pressure. And it's not just, you know, this Unibuy Westfield deal just happened, but you, know, you probably know there was also a bid by Brookfield to go after GGP. And that also was very interesting because that bid was well below uh, our NAV and well below the value implied now by this this Unibuy Westfield deal. So it's very interesting to see what's going to happen with GGP now, uh, whether they say no to the deal or they try to negotiate a higher price. Uh, Morty, M-O-R-T-Y, is um, one of the sponsors of today's podcast, and um, you should know it's the newest and smartest way to get a home mortgage. As you do know, getting a mortgage can be long, uh, confusing, grueling, expensive, humiliating, altogether unpalatable, hidden fees, endless calls, yeah, endless, strange terms. Well, now it's never been easier. Morty, that's M-O-R-T-Y, is a new type of mortgage company that can help you save time and money. Here's how it works. So what you do is enter your info into mortgage Morty's secure website, and you will immediately see the mortgage options you qualify for with real rates from different lenders. They can even show you all the hidden fees up front so you can confidently compare options and select the one that's best for you. So you get stuck at any point? Well, Morty has best-in-class customer support. Just call them up and they'll tell you what to do. Uh, They'll even talk to lenders on your behalf, sort of like uh, your personal 
mortgage concierge. We all need one of those. So whether you're a first-time home buyer looking to refinance or buying an investment property, head over to trymorty.com slash grant to get started today. That's at T-R-Y-M-O-R-T-Y dot com slash grant. Disclosure, must read verbatim. All right, here it goes. Morty Inc. is a licensed mortgage broker, equal housing lender, www.n. MLSConsumerAccess.org number one four two nine two four three. All right, thank you, Morty. Uh, Andy, in terms of the deal and kind of the cap rates you use both for Europe and the U.S., you said that the reason Westfield agreed to this was their cost of capital. Their, their shares are trading below NAV. But the one thing you didn't touch on is the reason why Unibuy could actually lever up its balance sheet. It's issuing debt at a sub-2% handle. Um, and that's driven not really by any kind of economic fundamental in Europe, but really by the ECB buying corporate bonds and driving down yields to, you know, one handles, or in some cases you're seeing um, sub-investment grade companies issuing with zero handles. How is the fact that Unibuy can actually finance so cheaply impacting this deal? And what does it mean for like, international arbitrage where European buyers just have a lower cost of capital right now. Yeah, so it's eye-opening to see where some of these companies can issue debt at, that is for sure. And I think from a local to local, so local, issuing debt in Europe and buying assets in Europe, I think that the, the level they can issue debt has definitely brought down uh, cap rates in those countries. As far as an arbitrage, I, I'm not sure there's there's actually an arbitrage, right? So you, you can issue debt really low in Europe and you can buy assets in the U.S. at a higher cap rate, but you're taking currency risk, right? So if you're taking some type of currency risk, is it a, is it a true arbitrage? But I think debt costs definitely impact local values, uh, whether or not they can use it to their advantage across the Atlantic. I'm not, I'm not not sure there, there's a true arbitrage there, but it definitely allows them to pay lower cap rates for, for European assets. And like, look, rates are higher in the U.S., but Simon and, and the other mall rates here, even though with all this concern about the retail assets, they can go issue debt here in the unsecured market extremely low as well. Not as low as in Europe, but still I, extremely I low. wonder whether these uh, extremely low yields aren't uh, more problematic than the market seems to think. I mean, might not they perpetuating obsolete business models? You know, they, when these companies in Europe can fund as low as they have been funding, you're reminded, at least I'm reminded, of the uh, long zombie march of obsolete and dying Japanese companies into oblivion seemed ever to be receding thanks to the good offices of the Bank of Japan. What about these rates? I mean, aren't they kind of spooky bordering on disconcerting? There's, there's kind of two questions there. The, the one about some of these obsolete business plans, and I do think there's going to be a right-sizing in the retail space. There has to be, especially in the U.S. The U.S. is over-retailed. And I think there will be malls on the other end when you get this right-sizing that, that come out stronger. The problem is a lot of these lower-quality malls are still owned by people with deep pockets, and they could feed capital into these things undeservingly and keep them alive for, for a long period of time. So I do think it's going to be more painful, and we've been taking our growth rates down and our cap rates up even for high-quality assets, but I do think they, they will eventually survive and a lot of low quality retail will not. When it comes to just the absolute level of rate, what I think the market is saying is if you look at longer into the curve, that the economy is not going to catch fire and inflation is going to be low for a longer period of time. We don't forecast interest rates. I don't know where they're going to go, but if someone put a gun to my head, I'd look at the yield curve and the yield curve tells me that the economy is not going to catch fire, whether whether right or wrong. And when I think about what could happen to real estate if rates go up, you know, I think it depends, right? So everyone focus on this. If interest rates go up, and I'm talking long-term rates, if they go up because the economy is getting better and you get some higher level of inflation, that might not be terrible for real estate and REITs because chances are you're getting rent growth to go along with it. So as my cap rates go up, my income is going up too. What we as real estate investors really worried about is some type of scenario where rates go up or long-term rates go up and you're not getting inflation or rent growth. That's where things can get really ugly for real estate. Andy, uh, the latest uh, uh, Heard on the Beach essay, which you have produced, they're always thought-provoking. This one I thought especially so 
the, the title is uh, What Would Buffett Buy? And it is a review of the paradox of real estate in the context of the of the well-known va- value investors maxim that uh, good things happen to cheap stocks. So in Wall Street, it's just that simple, supposedly. In real estate, it's not quite so simple as your essayist, and that, I think that was you actually, but as the Hurt on the Beach essayist points out, in the public side of the real estate markets, it is the expensive stuff that seems to do well, not over just one or two years, but over much longer periods. Whereas in the private sector part of the real estate market, it is the the value kind of real estate, the, the cheaper stuff, the higher cap rate stuff that seems to excel over time. What do you think of this? And what is an investor to do about it? Sometimes you get different answers in the public and private market, but I think it, it was, I didn't write that. That was our director of research in my career that wrote it, but it was, it, was, it was a great piece. I think when you look at different performance of public stocks and private real estate, I think in the public market, you do need, do need to realize relative performance across some of these property sectors were impacted by the capital allocation decisions of the management team. So over-levered going into the downturn and potentially having to re-equitize a lot uh, and destroying some value. So I think there's there's some moving pieces between, between the public and the private, but it, I think it is interesting. I think there are pockets of value in both places. And I do think there can be systematic mispricing both places too, especially when it comes to private real estate markets. And and by that, I mean, you know, we talk a lot about CapEx in our work. And I think you guys talk a lot about CapEx too. I, I, I read your piece when you were talking about a Canadian apartment REIT, I think cap REIT on how the, the CapEx uh, was misunderstood there. Um, in my prior life at Green Street covering the residential REITs, I covered cap REIT and I harped on that a lot. So I think of all the things that we look at in the commercial real estate space, CapEx, is the single most misunderstood issue, and it creates systematic mispricing in, in the marketplace. We believe that hasn't fully been corrected yet. And when we look across different property types, something like an office sector, TIs, leasing commissions, how much money you have to constantly reinvest in some of these property types to keep the properties competitive is much, much larger than what your average investor underwrites, and that creates mispricing. So, you know, when we look at the world today, you know, office is a, is a well-understood asset class, but we think it's the most overvalued of all the property types we cover. When you look at long-term growth, after CapEx, the growth is only average. And, and you pair that with persistently low cap rates and risk-adjusted return just don't look that great. Andy, you know, when it comes to uh, office... To pick, Andy, sorry. to pick apart one part of office, public versus private, you're, you're saying the public companies are overvalued. There's one space in office that always seems perennially undervalued. And I know it sometimes has problems, but it's suburban office. They tend not to be a lot of REITs about these, but they tend to have high cap rates. They always do. Could you tell us like where they're valued today, where they've been relative to history and kind of what it says about the industry? Yeah, so I think people look at high suburban office cap rates and you see high yield. You say, wow, that looks attractive, maybe especially relative to CBD office. But like I just said, office as an asset class, we think is is generally overpriced. And when you look at, I think cap rate spreads a lot of time between your gateway office and your suburban office. They're wide, but if, again, if you adjust for CapEx, they, they're not as wide as they may seem. A little bit of that uh, isn't... Can, can you give us a little sense of numbers? Uh, like, Is it like 4% cap rates versus 10? And kind of what does it come down with CapEx? I, I think it depends if you're talking kind of CBD New York versus CBD Atlanta. They're not that wide. Once you start going out into the suburbs, I think it depends. It could be two or 300 basis points. It could be six or 700 so, basis because, points. Because we're in uh, I, New York, why don't you really... do um, New York City versus like suburban Jersey? I don't have those numbers in front of me. Sorry about that, but I could probably pull them. But I think what it what the difference is when you think about suburban versus urban and where I'm going to put my investment dollars, there's different type of suburban products. So if I can get suburban product that's maybe on the fringe, but it has walkable amenities, it has good public transit or other urban-like attributes, I think a lot of those investments today look pretty attractive versus your typical CBD investment in a New York or a D.C., even potentially a Los Angeles, although although we do like the west side of Los Angeles today. It's 
it's it's really your suburban product that lacks those urban amenity walkable features. Now, and you might be getting a cap rate that's double or more of some of these CBD assets, but the growth profile, especially after CapEx, can look pretty bad. So even at those high yields, so those those kind of legacy old school suburban campuses still look pretty dangerous to us, even though those yields look so high. And sorry, I couldn't give you give you hard numbers, but it does vary. Uh, this episode of the uh, Grants Radio of the Air is uh, is brought to you by eFinancial Careers, uh, the world's leading financial services career website. So discover career-changing opportunities across the industry from leading brands to niche firms. Why not take the hard work out of job hunting? Register today to let the recruiters find you. Uh, you can uh, create a profile that recruiters easily match you to their open roles. You save jobs and create alerts to stay informed with the latest opportunities. Upload your resume and cover letter to quickly apply to jobs. Check out the site at uh, efinancialcareers.com. So Andy, your point is that Office is overvalued and is often overvalued. Is there anything right now that looks particularly undervalued or attractive as, as just a sector? There are. So we like some of the niche property types. I think our favorite property type today is manufactured home parks, so also known as trailer parks. And really just what those are is a community owner owns a park in the land and leases out the spaces to owners of the mobile homes. Although they call them mobile homes, they're, they're not that mobile. So we, we really like that sector. If you think about all the benefits you really get in, in manufactured home parks, you have a great demographic story, the baby boomers coming through, especially for age-qualified communities. You have all, almost no new supply coming in the manufactured home park business because of NIMBYism. Uh, you have Fannie and Freddie that provide you subsidized debt, uh, not for the homeowners per se, but for you as, as the park owner, so I can get wait, a wait financing that's wait, extremely the, the, attractive. The we the people are subsidizing the builders of trailer parks? Not necessarily the builders, but no, for what, stabilized what, what, operating what is this, communities. What is a stabilized operation? For apartments, but, but student housing. I'm repeat my question. So say I want to go out and, uh, and improve an existing uh, trailer park. Now, I'm, I'm, I can access uh, uh, Fannie or Freddie subsidized debt for this particular private purpose project. Is that right? What I mean by subsidize is the existence of a government guarantee yeah. and the government involvement of Fannie Freddie result in cheaper debt for residential real estate owners. That's apartments, student housing, yeah, parks, say, senior housing, manufactured home parks. Hey, let us then ask what kind of uh, value proposition you get in manufactured housing and how about a couple of tickers? I mean, what is out there for the public investor? So the two big ones are equity lifestyle and some communities. So we run a relative pricing model, so we always have to have a buy on one and a hold on the other. But I'd say if you, if you carve that out and say, hey, these are both pretty attractive companies, uh, equity lifestyle had, had focused more on the uh, so age-qualified segment. Those be, so, would those be old um, people, Older Andy? lifestyle communities. Older, 55 and over. Sun was predominantly an, uh, an all-age operator, so people of all ages, but they've bought more age-qualified communities as well. Both very good operating communities, deep liquid stocks, and just a really good story. And, and I think if you take a step back and just think about real estate as, in general, we as real estate investors, what are we really buying? We're buying two things. We're buying the appreciating land and the depreciating structures. That The beauty about manufactured home parks is me as the landowner, I don't own the depreciating structures. My tenants do. I own the land and they pay me rent. Now I might have a community center and a pool and the streets and different things, but for the most part, I own the appreciating land. My tenant owns the depreciating structure. It's a really good type uh, of, of real estate rent, investment. Uh, what kind of yield do you get off of these stocks? 
the yields on the stocks are different. I'd say if I think about cap rates, you know, cap rates in a lot of these communities, they're, they're a tiny bit higher than what we might use to value the apartment portfolios. But I have the same, roughly the same debt cost. And I have what we believe a vastly superior long-term growth profile, especially after CapEx. Now, when you think about AFO yields on some of these companies, they're probably high threes around four. Uh, we look at those more than dividend yields, but still relative to what you can get uh, in a lot of other sectors still looks attractive. And we like manufactured home parks, even in the public space, even though they're trading at fairly substantial premiums. Uh, so the public market has recognized the benefits, but we're still willing to pay those. Is there premiums. a risk that the tax bill is going to make Americans so wealthy that we're not going to live in trailer parks anymore? No, I don't think so. Well, I think that's, still that's encouraging. A, a I, I hate to think uh, that everyone is going to get as rich as Evan Lorenz. That'd be disgusting. Um, hey, Andy, thank you for joining us. Andy McCulloch <laughs> is um, the head of the real estate analytics department at uh, Green Street. And uh, as you have just heard, a most knowledgeable fellow. So uh, we appreciate both your time and your expertise, Andy. Thank you for being with us. Evan, thank you. Eric, well done as usual. Not one single glitch that I heard. It was perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, on behalf of Grants, we'll see you soon. Thank you, Andy. Thanks, guys. Have a happy holiday.